So today we're continuing in our series in the book of Amos. And so just real quick, if you're jumping in with us for the first time, uh, I'll give you some quick information to get you up to date. So the first week we looked at the history of Israel up until this point, how different kings chose different paths, and we looked at where they brought Israel as they chose not to follow the one that God had placed before them. And in that process, they were drawn away from true worship. And so in their drift from Yahweh, they all instead began worshiping lesser gods, golden cows. And so with that, we were able to recognize that we still do that today. And many times we replace God with other things that look good to us, but always come back uh, empty-handed. And And so we also saw in that first week that our God reveals his purposes and his desires for us to return to him by sending prophets and messengers and shepherds to his people to bring them this invitation to return home. And so that message, that invitation is threefold. And so first we saw that it reminds us of who he is as the true God with genuine authority. And second, his, his call is a warning for what happens when we lose our faith or reject him and his authority. And then finally, it's to invite us and to call us to repentance, but to freely and without fear come home to him. And so that right there is actually it's the theme of the entire book. That threefold call is what's going to transpire throughout this book, and it will appear time and time again. And so after that first week, when we looked at that call, we saw the scope of God's authority as he places judgments on the kingdoms surrounding Israel for the ways that they've chosen to reject him time and time again. And in those, we saw how God cares for his people and he cares how they treat their neighbors, both foreign and domestic, and that he cares how people treat their friends and he certainly cares how they treat their family. And then last week, uh, we were reminded by Pastor Tim of how God especially cares how his people treat others because they're called to be those who bear his image most, who model how God treats us and others. And so today, we'll take a closer look at God's people and compare the lives of those living in Israel in that day with a model that God presented to them much earlier. And then we'll end by looking at another story where, uh, to see how God treats those who choose to come home despite a life once lived in rebellion. So to begin, we're going to open to Amos chapter 4, and we're going to begin right there in verse 1. It says this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we might drink. Hey, listen, just in these first verses, God speaks really harshly against a very specific people group in Israel, namely the women of Bashan. So only five words into chapter four, he calls these women cows. Now listen, each week we've been putting on historical, contextual lenses to better understand the text, but I don't know if we really need them here to know how God feels about these people. But if we did, if we still chose to put on those contextual glasses, uh, we'd learn that this is definitely still an insult, but very different from the one that it would be today. So back then, uh, being a bit larger wasn't seen as so bad. In fact, uh, it may actually be desirable or a compliment. 
To have some meat on your bones means that you weren't hungry. It means you were well nourished. It was a sign of wealth and success. So that's not the insult here. Amor Bashan was known for two things, uh, its oak trees and its cattle. So Bashan was an area in the northern portion of Israel with large plains and hills filled with cattle. It was a, a place of prosperity for many. Yet at the same time, that prosperity was built off of the backs of laborers and servants who, by context, were mistreated and exploited. So as we finish verse 1, we find a group of wealthy women who have been able to gain their success at the expense of the needy, and it led them to be a lazy people, just as unaware of their coming demise as the herds of cattle bred for slaughter. And as we continue on, we'll see that God is beyond displeased with these women, so much so that he declares judgment in verse 2 and 3, and as we enter verse 4 and 5, we'll discover even more the reason for God's scorn. So listen to these verses. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the, the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For you so love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So in verse 4 through 5, God invites these women to continue making sacrifices, continue making their tithes, bring their offerings full of leaven and brag about their religiosity. God says that this was what they truly loved. And last week, uh, Tim showed us that God's judgments were so stern against his people because they should have known better. God gave them the law and modeled for them time and time again what it means to be holy like he's holy. But these women of Bashan, they should have known better because God had given them the model for what it means to be holy, wise, faithful women of God. In fact, 200 years before their time through King Solomon, Proverbs 31 was penned. And listen, it's not a formula for the perfect woman that you you just like go play by play, but instead it serves as a picture of the kind of traits that God says reflect his character. So the Proverbs 31 woman is supposed to be seen as a model for God's wisdom manifest in the lives of his people. And these women had access to that. So let's, let's read that passage together and compare these two to see where the women of Bashan veered off course enough that God had called them out specifically. So this is Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10. It says, An excellent woman who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. All right, so let's just stop there. Uh, I'm not trusting for a second the woman who oppresses the poor or crushes the needy. And my heart in no way is going to be filled without any lack of gain with a wife that sits around all day drinking with her friends and worse, making me follow her around to fill her cup. No thank you. Are you hearing me, Laura? Just kidding. Listen, God is not pleased with contentious, demanding, or drunk people of any gender. Here's what he wants instead. 
Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while, it's, while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the uh, to staff and her, uh, holds the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. So God wants wives and women and husbands and men, for that matter, who are willing to work hard and who not only see their households, but also those who serve them. And God wants us to care for them in return. He wants a servant people of humility and, and compassion who don't exploit the poor or crush the needy, but open their hands to them, who reach out their hands to them. Let's continue, verse 21. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. So, so this is not how the women of Bashan were described. They're these slosheth, lazy, loud wives. So different than the Proverbs 31 woman. And listen to this last line as we describe this woman, this model that they had access to. Verse 30. It says, charm is deceitful, beauty vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So the Proverbs 31 woman, the last and most significant characteristic that, she's, that she has is that she fears the Lord and that her demeanor and character speak for themselves and she's praised for it. So listen, the first few verses of Amos 4 and these verses in Proverbs 31 are absolutely directed first towards women. So if you're here today, and you live at the expense of others, if you turn your nose up at the beggar on the street, if you regularly bark orders at your husband or your family, if you ignore your children, God is not thrilled with you. He has no delight in whatever offerings you bring to the church. He does not care about your attendance. Here, it gains you nothing. It amuses him little. Instead, all that righteous religious activity becomes for you a transgression or a trespass. Because God looks at that and says, how can you enter my space and hear my word yet live out nothing that I've taught or called you to? It's insulting to God and he rejects it all. And while this is an indictment targeting women, I'm sure that it's meant to be heard and heeded by all of us. So listen, these are all things that we can be guilty of. Men, we are not off the, the hook here. 
So in the model that Proverbs gives us for lady wisdom, we find someone who cares deeply for their family, but who equally has compassion on the least of these. We find someone who fears the Lord, and that fear leads them to work hard to provide for themselves, for their families, but also for others. And so I've preached this often, hospitality, the love of strangers, it's, found, it's a foundational characteristic of God and his people. And so when we lose sight of this, we lose sight of him, and all our activity in the church becomes empty and worthless. And that's why we promote things here like this back-to-school drive that I announced, and we're raising funds for the people of Northeast. And, and it's why if there's money in your wallets this morning, you'll put some of that towards that initiative because, listen, we are not the women of Bashan. We are God's bride who reaches out our hands towards the needy, not people who walk past or step over them, crushing them in the process. And so, listen, I'm serious about that. Like, let's test ourselves right now in a really small way. If there is money in your pocket right now, find me one good reason why a portion of that shouldn't go towards making sure children in our community have what they need for school this year. So I dare you to find one good and God-honoring excuse. The women of Amos 4 had access to the words of Proverbs 31, but they rejected them the same as many do today. And God not only mourns, but is displeased when people come and they claim his name all the while refusing to live with the kinds of character that he calls us to. So listen, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But the fear of the Lord is to be praised and that fear manifests itself in the way that we live. When she's ascribed to somebody who reaches out her hand or who gives to the poor, that's a model for us, which means that we should reach out our hands and give to the poor or the needy. We should be known and praised in our communities by the way that we do that. So all of that to say this, acceptable worship looks like a life lived like the wise woman of Proverbs 31. Acceptable worship looks like a life lived like the wise woman. So if you're here today and you said, I'm here to worship the Lord, this is what it looks like. It's so much more than what happens in this room. It's so much more than the songs we sing. Those are absolutely an act of worship, but it's only a narrow portion of what worship is called praise. This is worship, a life lived like the wise woman. So if that's a too fancy uh, description, I'm just trying to say that we, uh, we all should strive to live like that woman even if we're male, okay, we can all look up to the Proverbs 31 woman. And as we shift back into Amos 4, his attention expands beyond these women here, back to the nation that they were just uh, an example or representation of. And so listen to these words beginning in Amos chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not have rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
So I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So I overthrew some of you, and when God overthrew Sodom, like God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So in these verses, we find what often can be a really difficult reality for us to understand and accept. God says that he not only allowed, but even directs and ordains calamity. So it's not that sometimes God just lets bad things happen. It's that there are times that he makes sure they do. And for those who don't know God, they see this and they think that God is cruel and harsh. But for those who intimately know him, yes, we can see how this could be misconstrued. But we have wisdom to know that God should be feared, not because he's cruel, but because he's just. And even greater than that, we who have seen the justice of God have also more closely experienced the riches of his grace and mercy. Therefore, we can see that just because something bad happens, it doesn't mean that the one who willed it did evil, right? Like, parents, listen, when we take something away from our kids, that seems bad to them. As a youth pastor, I never had a parent tell me that when they took their kid's phone, they replied, thank you. Like it never feels good when our kids lose their phones or whatever it might be, but that might be good for them. Taking from them may actually be the good thing to do. And the loss of a life is a terrible tragedy. But taking away men by the sword may actually be a grace when those young men who were dying were those who were taking the lives of others. So God's not bringing these actions upon the innocent in our text, but on the wicked. And so it's important for us to put these acts of God that we just read in context. See, he absolutely wills bad things to happen, but it's never on the innocent. It's always on the sinner who wages, of, uh, their wages are death. And can I remind you that that means all of us who have sinned have fallen short and we all rebel and our rebellion is worthy of retribution. We all have rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. And if hearing that makes you defensive, there's your sign of that rebellion in your heart right there. The only reason that any of us have a problem with accepting the reality that God sometimes judges is because we have a problem accepting that God is not actually our equal, but our creator and our king who's judge and should be feared. Further, God in this case is not doing these things merely to judge these people, but more to discipline them in hopes that they would recognize who he is and who they are not, and then to turn back to him. So again, parents, listen. We don't punish our kids. I want, I want to make that clear. We don't punish our kids because punishment only serves justice. But we do discipline our children because we seek their good and hope that it will lead them to repentance. So discipline serves them and it's for their good. 
God does not punish his children because Jesus took our punishment. But God absolutely disciplines his people because he desires their good and wants us to grow in fear and wisdom and to be like the woman he depicted in a passage like Proverbs 31. So it's up on the screen. God does not punish his people, but he does discipline them because he wants to develop disciples. So there's a difference between punishment and discipline and its motivation and its purpose. Judgment serves justice. Discipline serves us. Sometimes the things that seem bad to us are actually for our good. And if we recognize who God is, we can trust in his mercy and his grace when famine strikes or something as serious as death occurs because we know that God is for us. Um, So... Listen, this point right here, it's genuinely difficult. So if you're a skeptic or new to the faith, if you're struggling with what I've been saying here in this portion, I get it. It's a hard pill to swallow to hear me say that death and plague and famine and drought can in some form be of of good. And so I hear you. But if I can, I, I just want to invite you not to leave here yet because this isn't the end of the story. God, if you're willing to consider that he's real, is obviously going to be a complicated being. After all, he made everything. So before coming to a judgment about who he is based upon this small portion of his text, at least just hear me out for the remainder of our time. And shoot me an email this week. I'm happy to engage with you more on this subject. But listen, God does not punish his people. He disciplines them because he wants to develop disciples. Sometimes what looks bad to us is actually for our good. Listen to this last verse from chapter 4. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So in this last verse, God cries out that these people would just remember who he is He is the one who created the very hills and plains their cattle live on and from which they get their grapes for their wine. He is the God with all power and dominion, God over all other gods and men. That is who he is. And here again, God tells the hearers of his word the purpose behind all these acts that we so often attribute negatively to him instead of recognizing their true nature. God's desire is for us to know him. So now go back and read these verses in context. Verses six through 11, he repeats time and time again this phrase, yet you did not return to me. So chapter four says this, read in in context. It says, you mistreated the poor, so I disciplined you with famine, yet you did not return to me. You mistreated your family, so I withheld the rain, yet you did not return to me. You denied my temple for your own places of worship, so I struck you with blight, yet you did not return to me. You insulted me with sacrifices filled with leaven, sacrifices I explicitly told you I did not want. So I sent pestilence, sickness, yet you did not return to me. You boasted in what you called good deeds, all the while crushing the poor, exploiting the needy, and killing those who opposed you. Yet you call me evil for bringing judgment upon you for these acts of violence upon the most vulnerable. 
and you continue to refuse my ways. You refuse to return to me. So I took some of your children. Still, you would not return to me. So, so now read in context, God's actions make far more sense. They're not random acts of violence. They're meant to bring these men and women of Bashan down from their arrogant heights. They're meant to bring humility to the proud. They're there with a goal to turn these people away from the cruelty of their own actions, to face consequences for those things, to, 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 uh, to hate those consequences and recognize, man, if I would turn back to the Lord, all of this would end. Yet the people refused to relent, and instead they drew further and further from God's ways of compassion. These people who God disciplined were cruel and deserving of the punishments that God dealt. You, you know, today we live in a country that teaches us to be proud and considers itself the greatest. Yet we as a country in our history have done nothing less than the actions that we read here. We've entered countries that were not own. We've, we've taken young men from their families. We've brought sickness and famine and drought to people and lands. We've abused the poor and exploited the needy. And listen, as far as countries go, I'm so thankful to live in this one. I'm not here to criticize America, but I am here to tell you that America is not innocent and more that it's certainly nothing in comparison to the greatness of God's kingdom to which we're called to live first. So listen, God absolutely wants people to worship him. That's true. But acceptable worship looks like a life lived like the wise woman. God says that to worship him means to care for strangers, to love our families and have compassion on the poor and needy. And while God is a God of justice who absolutely will bring judgment upon the wicked, God does not punish his people, but he does discipline because he wants to develop disciples. Sometimes what looks bad to us is actually for our good. And God's goal in discipline is that we would recognize God and, and his displeasure in our disobedience and that we would repent and turn back to him. And although this last point isn't so clearly present in chapter four, the Bible is much more than just this one portion. And all throughout, we can find example after example of what it does look like when we recognize God's call and return to him in repentance. And that's why I chose to enter into this time this morning with that story of the prodigal son. Because there in Luke 15, we find the nature of God who calls us to walk in his ways and who holds justice in such high regard. Here in the story, we find a son who does not know his father well. Instead, he hates him and rejects him and takes from him and abandons him. Yet, when he recognizes the gifts of his father, and he sees how he treats his servants and his family, the son desires to come home. And though returning in fear, he finds a father who runs to him without disdain, but with open arms and joy and celebration this son, once of rebellion, quickly becomes a son his father rejoices over just for returning home. Because see, this father loves his son and wants nothing for him but his good. So the story of this wayward son is a story of someone who rejected the ways of wisdom and lived as a fool. 
It's a story of someone who clearly mistook their father's discipline for cruelty and rejects the father in response. But it's also the story of what happens when one recognizes the true nature of the one they abandon, how they treat the stranger, the servant, and the son, and how quickly the father forgives and embraces all those who would hear his call to return home to him. And the last verse of the story reads this way. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was a lost and is now found. The book of Amos opens with a picture of God as a lion looking over his home uh, that his children abandoned. And standing there, he cries out for them to come home before calamity strikes. The woman and the men of Bashan did not heed that warning and instead refused to return to him. Church, let our story be different than theirs. Instead, let us be a people who recognize who God is and who understand that acceptable worship looks like a life lived like the wise woman. Let us be a people of, who fear God, knowing that he is a God of justice, but also who understand that God doesn't punish us, but he may discipline us if we go too far off track because he wants to develop disciples. And finally, let us be a people who understand that our God is a God of grace who forgives freely if we're willing to repent and return to him. Let's pray.